This program is presented by the MCTV Network, a service of the City of Midland, Michigan. This presentation coincides with programming on Midland Government Television, covering government affairs in the City of Midland. joining us for the final presentation in our Meet the President's Lecture Series. President Richard Nixon had many accomplishments during his administration. He was the first president to visit the People's Republic of China. He signed the Paris Peace Accords ending the Vietnam War. He ended the military draft, signed the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, founded the EPA, lowered the voting age to 18, and welcome the astronauts home from their first moon landing. But many of us remember President Nixon most by his famous quote, I am not a crook, as the Watergate scandal enveloped him. Whether he was a crook or just a victim of his times, Nixon was certainly a complicated figure who was both brilliant and tragically flawed. Tonight we are joined by Dr. Mitchell Hall from Central Michigan University who has written extensively on the Vietnam War and the Nixon and Ford administrations. He will help us understand how Nixon's weaknesses and the politics of the day led him on the road to Watergate. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Mitchell Hall. Well, thank you very much. Um, can everybody hear me okay? Uh, but there's been some issue with the visual. Could be human error, could be mechanical error. Uh, so you can either close your eyes during the presentation or just pretend that it's radio rather than television tonight. Um, either way. Uh, so I'm going to change things a little bit since I don't have visuals um, and, and try and talk a little bit more uh, folksy, which is not difficult because I'm from Kentucky and... Uh, if you hear an occasional y'all or something like that, that's just, that's just me. Uh, the, the main theme for tonight is uh, the presidency. And so I'm going to focus on Nixon in the White House. But I also want to talk a little bit about how he got there. Uh, that's, that's part of the interesting story. Nixon was born in 1913, and he had um, uh, four brothers. He was the second oldest in a family that wasn't truly poor, uh, but their, their father, uh, Frank Nixon, worked at several low-paying jobs and was able to uh, get the family through some difficult times, but never really get ahead in the game. Uh, you, any of you that have any familiarity with Richard Nixon probably recall that he often referred to his mother as a saint. He revered her. Uh, he followed her uh, Quaker teachings, or absorbed her Quaker teachings, I should say. Um, his father, he, he wasn't nearly as close to. Uh, Frank Nixon could sometimes be belligerent in the house, and when that took place, then Richard would grab a book and, and just go away and, and hide. 
Uh, even as a loner, Richard Nixon was often, or even as a boy, Richard Nixon was often a loner. And he could be painfully ill at ease, which was easy to see even uh, when he was in the White House. He often looked uncomfortable around groups of people. And that's because he truly was uncomfortable. He would find himself in, in situations as president, let's say um, a major banquet with a head of state, and he had a rule that was enforced by some of his aides. No conversation with him would go longer than five minutes. So sometimes in the middle of a thought or in the middle of a sentence, that would be it. Nixon didn't want to continue with that any longer. So he had difficulty fitting in. But he did have a, a dry sense of humor that he carried with him throughout his life. Uh, although he uh, qualified to get into Harvard University, his family didn't have the money for him to go there, so he ended up going to a nearby Whittier College, um, where he was a standout student. He also played on the football team, but he was too small, too uncoordinated, too slow to play much. But he was known on the team for absorbing a tremendous amount of punishment uh, in practice. And in doing so, he won the uh, admiration of many of his teammates. He always came back for more. He, was, he loved being part of the team, even though he was a minor contributor. And after graduating from Whittier, he uh, enrolled in law school at Duke University. Uh, had a successful run there and graduated in 1937 and then returned home and couldn't really find exactly what he wanted, but finally, um, uh, according to uh, most of the scholarship that I've read, his mother found a job for him in a local law firm. And so um, that was his first postgraduate job. Throughout his life, one of his staunchest supporters was his wife. And in 1940, uh, Nixon married Thelma Ryan, who went by Pat. By most accounts, they had a very re uh, loving relationship. Um, after Nixon achieved the vice presidency and the presidency, uh, their relationship often got a bad rap in the press and in the general public because they didn't, they didn't seem to warm up to each other in public. And that's because they were very reluctant to engage in any uh, public scenes of affection. Behind the scenes, they, they did seem to rely on one another and love each other tremendously. Pat Nixon believed uh, in Richard Nixon. She believed he was a great man. She also believed, as he did, that he was a person of destiny. And so she supported his campaigns uh, through much of his career. She also served as his most significant advisor, at least until he reached the White House. In 1952, when Nixon was running for the vice presidency, he encountered a uh, a problem that changed that situation somewhat. And the press reported that he had a secret slush fund that he was using to uh, personal benefit. Now, it's true that he did have a political fund. Uh, it wasn't a secret fund, uh, but it caused so much public harassment. And I'll talk about the speech that he had uh, addressed that issue a little bit later. 
It caused such harassment for the family that Pat Nixon just sort of flipped a switch. And uh, oftentimes she argued against him running for office after 1952. Uh, but there were times when she recognized uh, Nixon's own drive was so great that not running for office uh, could have had physical implications, that he might just worry himself or uh, fret to such an extent that it might lead him to an early grave. And so she was willing to go along with his post-vice president runs for office, but she wasn't uh, enthusiastic about it after that point. People around the Nixons knew Pat Nixon as very opinionated, but also very warm with her family. But they also uh, recognized that she was sometimes slighted, not necessarily intentionally or cruelly, uh, by Richard Nixon. Uh, he, he often would uh, fly, for example, on planes with the family. He wouldn't sit with him, with his wife or later with his daughters. Uh, they would sort of uh, paste on a, a smile and a, a greeting attitude during meet and greets during his campaigns. Uh, but Nixon was not one to, to warm up to them. In fact, we, we see in, in his diary that after his second inaugural, he writes in the diary that he was relieved that the First Lady hadn't embarrassed him with any public displays of affection. Nixon tried, however, to impress Pat, uh, even uh, after many, many years of marriage. One story in uh, one of the books I looked at in preparation for this evening, has Henry Kissinger telling a story uh, about walking to uh, a meal, being invited to a family meal with just the president and with Pat Nixon and himself. And when the president invited him over, uh, Nixon suggested that he tell his wife, tell Pat Nixon, some of the great achievements that Richard Nixon had achieved in foreign policy. And Kissinger said, all right, I'll do that. So when he excused himself to go to the bathroom during the meal, Kissinger dutifully started recounting some of Nixon's achievements. And Pat, who must have heard this from other people before, said, oh, Henry, you don't have to. Well, Richard Nixon was recruited uh, out of his law firm into a position with the federal government. And he and Pat moved to Washington in 1942, but he got very bored. Uh, he was an attorney in a wartime tire rationing uh, position. And so he very quickly decided that wasn't for him. And although his mother raised him with pacifist uh, leanings, he decided to enlist in the Navy. He became an air transport officer in the Pacific, where he uh, claims that his uh, biggest threat were poisonous insects. So he never saw combat action. But he served until uh, the end of the war. He was also known uh, for his prowess at gambling, playing poker, and won thousands of dollars playing poker, and according to Pat Nixon, sent a lot more money home from poker than he did from his lieutenant's pay. So that probably helped. Once he left the Navy and once the war was over, he decided to move into politics in Southern California and was elected to the House of Representatives. 
While there, he was a member of the House and American Activities Committee and earned a reputation of being an ardent anti-communist. He played a key role in the Alger Hiss case. Hiss was a member of the uh, Roosevelt administration, high-ranking, very well thought of, a uh, key diplomat in the U.S. government. And he was accused of uh, ties to communist activities. Um, in 1948, Nixon led the investigation for HUAC, uh, the House Committee, and although Hiss was not convicted of uh, those activities, he was convicted of perjury. Now, this is this was a major case in the 1940s. Uh, he was finally convicted in, in 1950, and ever since, there have been arguments about was Hiss really a communist or was he not? And although we still don't know entirely for sure, the evidence now seems to lean toward the fact that he did have some involvement in spying for the Soviets. He made enough of a reputation that he ran in 1950 for the Senate and was elected to the Senate. And after only two years there, the Republican candidate Dwight Eisenhower tapped him for the vice presidency. And it's at this point uh, after being on the campaign trail for a while that the press starts reporting about this slush fund. Some of Eisenhower's key advisors spoke to him directly and said, you need to retire from the ticket. Ike wants you to step down. And this looked to Nixon like the end of his political career. But he decided to make a, a televised address and basically ask the public to decide whether he should stay or not. And so he talks uh, about the charges, refutes the charges. Uh, I do have a fund. It's a public fund. I'm not using it for personal gain. Uh, I'm a man of, of uh, very average means. My wife, Pat, doesn't have uh, a fur coat. She has a good Republican cloth coat is one of the key lines. Uh, and he ended it by saying, but there is one gift that I did receive, and I'm not going to give it back. It's a dog named Checkers that my little girls love, and I'm not going to take it away from them. So he makes this real tearjerker appeal. And the response is, is overwhelming. Oh, this is wonderful. The press calls it the Checkers speech. Nixon always referred to it as the fund speech, but Checkers speech is what most people know it as. So Eisenhower changed his mind and said, all right, stay. When things rolled around in 1956, the beginning of the second term, Eisenhower again started suggesting, why don't you step down from the ticket? Uh, and you get this impression that Eisenhower wasn't thrilled with Nixon, and that's, that's true. But uh, Nixon held out. He uh, got some write-in votes at the New Hampshire primary, and with, with those independent votes in New Hampshire, Eisenhower changed his mind again. So Nixon served two full terms. Uh, with Eisenhower as vice president. And there were a couple of things that stood out that helped make his reputation as a world figure there. In 1956, he was uh, in Moscow as a, just a member of uh, a, a U.S. delegation there. And he engaged uh, the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, in an area where a kitchen display uh, had been set up to try and replicate uh, what Americans had at home. And with that kitchen in the background, 
Nixon talks about the benefits of American society face to face with the Soviet leader. So this won him, him some real support. Two years later in 1958, he's on a tour of Latin America. And in both Peru and later in Venezuela, he's confronted by mobs, anti-American mobs. And in Venezuela in particular, his car is surrounded and for about 15 minutes, um, his, his life was in danger. No one knew if, uh, what the mob was gonna do, but the car couldn't move. It took the Venezuelan police about 15 minutes to get him out of there and back to the embassy. But his, um, his uh, bravery in the car, his comments through the windows, again, earned him praise as someone who was willing to stand up uh, to individuals in foreign countries. So this kitchen debate in 56 and standing up against the mob in Venezuela in 1958 helped to give him a higher profile. And so the Republicans rewarded him in 1960 with their nomination for the presidency. And in this role, Nixon plays, um, plays out one of the more interesting scenes in the first televised presidential debates in US history. He's facing off against the Democrat, uh, John Kennedy. One writer talks about seeing them on TV for the first time. Contrasting images, Kennedy, calm, confident, presidential, Nixon, eyes furtively watching his opponent, sweat streaking the smear of lazy shave on his feet, or on his face, shoulders hunched. Kennedy was made for the camera. Nixon was not. And although most people argue that the actual debates, the content of debates, were probably a draw, for Kennedy that was a gain because before that, he'd been seen as a playboy, uh, sort of a dilettante, uh, an immature leader. But on that stage, with world traveler Richard Nixon, Kennedy seemed his equal, and Kennedy wins a narrow victory. So Nixon joins a Wall Street law firm, continues to campaign nationally for Republican candidates, uh, runs for governor of California in 1962, but loses again. And at that point, uh, he met the press, who he was never really friendly with, and said, you're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. In other words, he thought, that's it. I'm never going to run for office again. But he did. In 1968, he will become president of the United States. And so the question is, how did Nixon get there uh, from two devastating defeats in 1960 and 1962 uh, with two fairly liberal uh, Democratic presidents, Kennedy and Johnson? to a point where he was now going to the White House. I think it's fair to say that things changed significantly between 1960 and 1968. Civil rights movement, counterculture, the war in Vietnam, the rights revolution where women, gays, Latinos, Native Americans, and other liberation movements challenged social inequalities in American life. For the most part, these are positive things. Americans made tremendous gains in the 1960s. But after several years, the cohesion of those early groups began to disappear. 
fringe elements um, made their way into all of these groups. And some of them were, were willing to use violence to achieve goals. The chaos finally got to many of the American people. So in 1968, Americans faced a very troubled world. The Tet Offensive raised fundamental questions about the war in Vietnam. Assassins killed Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert Kennedy. Student radicals seized buildings at Columbia University. And police rioted with protesters in the streets of Chicago. Overseas, students and police clashed in deadly riots in Mexico City. France experienced a general strike. Soviet forces invaded Czechoslovakia. Many people believed that the country, that the world, was poised on the edge of disaster. So maybe we need a change. Maybe the old ways aren't working any longer. Let's try somebody new. Now there's a debate, a historical debate, about where Richard Nixon was ideologically. Was he a conservative? Was he a moderate? Was he a liberal? I think it's safe to say he was really none of those things all the time. He was at heart a pragmatist. He wanted to rule. And with a Democratic Senate and a Democratic House of Representatives, if we truly wanted to rule, he had to make compromises. He had to do things that Congress would be willing to support. And so he did what was practical. Sometimes those were things that he supported. Sometimes he tried to shape them and move them in, in his direction. Uh, but he was at, at heart somebody that wanted to act and do things. He didn't just want to, to sit in the White House and let those years go by. Although in retrospect, that might have been better than how it turned out. So although Nixon isn't truly an ideological conservative, he's riding a conservative wave. 1968 is one of those key presidential election years where we see a transformation of American politics from the liberalism that really started uh, with Franklin Roosevelt, the New Deal, uh, on up through Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society. Things are now shifting. Whereas Barry Goldwater uh, had been uh, overwhelmingly defeated in 1964, he was in the far right, Richard Nixon will win in 1968. And in four years after that, 1972, he will defeat a liberal Democrat, a very liberal Democrat, in an equally devastating defeat as Goldwater had suffered. But now, instead of being the far right that lost, it's the far left. Things are changing, and Nixon is at the heart of this change. Richard Nixon began his presidency talking about governing in consultation with a strong cabinet. His original cabinet was a homogenous group of uh, people who were the same age, the same race, the same gender. But even that cohesive group didn't last for long. Nixon shifted people into roles that best fit his own style and quickly concentrated power to an unprecedented degree in the White House. Nixon's foreign policy, for example, was tightly controlled by himself and his national security advisor and often bypassed the State Department completely. He closed himself off from the traditional bureaucracy, even from close friends, sometimes from family. Nixon told his chief aide, 
I must build a wall around me. Another aide said later, basically the boss doesn't like to see people. Nixon started referring to himself in the third person, calling himself RN. RN does this, RN wants that, RN would like to see this. And the person who suffered most from that was probably his wife, Pat Nixon, because she was no longer a close advisor. His chief advisor, Bob Haldeman, kept everybody away. Haldeman, his domestic advisor, uh, Ehrlichman, John Ehrlichman, and his uh, chief foreign advisor, Henry Kissinger, were all German-Americans, and they all kept the president insulated and isolated. And because they were all German-Americans, they were referred to as the Berlin Wall. You can't get through the Berlin Wall to see the president. What Nixon most aspired to be was Charles de Gaulle, the French president, World War II hero, uh, political, uh, at the center of the French political nation in the decades after that, into the 1960s. And he saw de Gaulle as uh, his role model. He liked Teddy Roosevelt a lot. He liked Woodrow Wilson a lot. But he loved Charles de Gaulle, somebody that's aloof, uh, self-assured, So he moves forward. He preferred to operate in secrecy. Sometimes this bordered on an obsession. Domestic initiatives such as his new federalism program appeared to attack big government and favor local authority. But if Nixon sought to restrict the power of the federal bureaucracy, he increasingly expanded and concentrated power inside the executive branch. So maybe Congress should be a little less influential but certainly not me in the White House. During the election and beyond, President Nixon worked to enhance his own political appeal and to broaden the foundation of the Republican Party. Part of this effort was built around the Southern strategy, as he called it, that would separate Southern conservatives from the Democratic Party. Barry Goldwater's 1964 campaign and dissatisfaction among some whites over civil rights legislation helped to undermine the Democrats' long-standing hold on the South. In this, he was successful. Nixon effectively appealed to those who opposed the pace and the direction of civil rights initiatives. He criticized busing as a means of achieving racial integration in schools, for example, and tried to slow down court-ordered uh, desegregation. He also appointed Southerners in growing numbers to federal positions although the Senate rejected his first two nominations for the Supreme Court. Beyond the obvious issue of race, the president hoped to build a new Republican coalition that would also lure northern uh, blue-collar whites away from the Democratic Party. He had a great appeal, for example, in Michigan, among other places. Nixon and Vice President Spiro Agnew successfully, and as it turned out, ironically, appealed to this silent majority as defenders of law and order. They specifically identified cultural and political oppositional groups and excluded them from meaningful deliberations, a process they called positive polarization. 
Few problems were more pressing for President Nixon when he entered office than the dawning challenges of the economy. Nixon inherited growing inflation from the Johnson administration, caused largely by war-related uh, budget deficits. But the economy got worse under Nixon. During the mid-1970s, America's post-World War II run of economic prosperity slowed dramatically. Industrial competition from abroad eroded U.S. supremacy in manufacturing and wiped out many high-paying jobs. Labor unions faced declining numbers and influence as the nation moved increasingly to a service economy. Well, we all know that. After 1973, real wages for Americans fell consistently for the next two decades. Inflation contributed to shifting American trade imbalances, turning the country into a net importer for the first time in the 20th century. And a stagnant economic growth coupled with high inflation, what people called stagflation, characterized the American economy for much of the 1970s. Things were not getting better. Nixon's social policies were more liberal than his often divisive language would indicate. In general, President Nixon did not attempt to roll back liberal programs of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations. He did not pursue an ideologically conservative Republican social agenda, but he did help erode some of the great society programs that offended his Republican constituency. For example, although he abolished the Office of Economic Opportunity and cut funding for other social programs, in a number of areas he complemented congressional measures. He declared a war on crime. He worked successfully with Congress in bringing about several new anti-crime bills. His plans to reorganize the executive branch, however, and drastically cut the number of cabinet positions went nowhere. One aspect of the president's domestic program was designed to appeal to conservatives particularly, and this was the new federalism. It's also known as revenue sharing. This provided federal block grants to state and local governments to spend at their discretion rather than for projects specifically allocated by the federal government. Legislation transferred $4 billion per year from Washington to the states and continued through the Reagan administration. Critics claimed the program hurt Americans on the margins and wasn't any more efficient than the old way. Supporters liked the flexibility and the local control. So some liked it, some didn't. The public expressed greater concern over the environment and the use of natural resources as there were more catastrophic oil spills, acid rain, ozone depletion, proliferating chemical poisons. All of these threatened plant and animal life. Congress passed significant environmental leg legislation protecting air, water, endangered species, and Nixon attached himself to this movement, to this legislation, and supported these measures. He wasn't really a committed environmentalist, however, and sometimes um, he would act contrary to the uh, measure's intent, and sometimes refused to spend that money until the the courts ordered him to do so. 
It was during the Nixon administration that we have the rise of the Environmental Protection Agency and the Occupational Safety and Health Administration that helped for the safety, uh, safety standards in the workplace. So he is there when these key elements come into play. He generally supported them. He rarely initiated them. Although the administration usually stood against the rapidly changing moral standards in the country in the 60s and early 70s, the apparent sexual revolution of those days made extramarital sex and divorce much more acceptable, not to the Republican base, but to society in general. The widespread availability of birth control and changing social attitudes led to declining birth rates in the country. Title IX prohibited sex discrimination in higher education, and growing numbers of women entered the paid workforce. Nixon was president during this transition. He supported many of them. He initiated none of them. And finally, the Supreme Court played an important role in many of these issues. Nixon expected that his appointments to the Supreme Court, he made four of them, a very high number in the history of the US. He thought things would turn sharply to the right. And in this regard, he was a bit mistaken. Two of the four became much more moderate than he had anticipated. The other two did help shift the court in a more conservative direction, but it largely continued in the same direction that it had been going. The Burger Court upheld busing to achieve school integration. It legalized abortion in the Roe v. Wade decision, and it ruled against Richard Nixon in the Pentagon Papers case. You don't always get what you want. So these are some of the key things about Nixon's domestic policy. Let me look briefly at his foreign policy because that's really where he was most interested. As I mentioned before, he and his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger, concentrated foreign policy decisions in the White House. They pursued a realist approach to foreign policy that emphasized power rather than ideology. Nixon broke with Cold War practice and significantly improved relations with the major communist powers. Having built his political reputation as an ardent anti-communist, however, Nixon as president eased tensions with those powers, labeled this uh, detente. He encouraged closer cooperation with the Soviet Union and China. He recognized that the communist powers distrusted each other as much as they did the capitalist powers. And he played on that rivalry to America's benefit, and hopefully to pressure North Vietnam to reach an agreement that the Americans could live with. Didn't quite get that last one. Reversing the decades old US policy toward China was gradual and politically sensitive. He improved uh, relations began in 1971. Some of you may remember that the first breakthrough was when an American table tennis team toured China. It's called ping pong diplomacy. And Nixon followed that up by wrangling an invitation to go to China himself. This was a huge event. Careful negotiations took him to China in February of 1972. And the trip had long-term implications. It produced the Shanghai communique, 
which for the first time formally had the United States recognizing the, the Beijing government, the mainland China government, as the legitimate representative of the Chinese people, as opposed to the government on the island of Taiwan uh, that had been led by Chiang Kai-shek since World War II. Most of the public supported Nixon's shocking political turnaround and was fascinated, the country was fascinated by a week's worth of television, live television, of Nixon on the Great Wall and Nixon uh, toasting with uh, Zhou Enlai and Mao Zedong. Some conservatives weren't quite so happy. They saw this as abandoning an ally, the Taiwanese, and a dangerous compromise with communism. As with China, Nixon also improved relations with the Soviet Union. He also visited the Soviet Union as president, in fact, just months after going to China. And he helped negotiate arms control treaties, the Strategic Arms Limitations Talks, SALT, and the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, that helped to limit nuclear proliferation. It didn't end the arms race, it didn't end the nuclear race, but it made a real step forward in trying to get nuclear proliferation under control. Beyond dealing with the communist superpowers, the United States continued to support pro-American anti-communist regimes around the world, regardless of their commitment to democracy and human rights. This sometimes meant alignment with right-wing dictatorships and opposition to democratically elected governments that were less amenable to U.S. interests. For example, America favored Pakistan in 1971 in its war against India in Bangladesh. It supported apartheid regimes in South Africa and Rhodesia. It interfered in the Angolan Civil War, and it manipulated the electoral process and the government in Chile. The U.S. poured billions of dollars into Iran during the 1970s. Arab-Israeli tensions erupted again during the October, 1960, or October 1973 Yom Kippur War. And it was during this war that Arab nations embargoed oil exports. And you may recall the long lines of cars uh, at gas stations waiting and waiting and waiting to get that gasoline that now costs a lot more than it used to. I tell my students uh, that I once paid 19 cents a gallon for, for gasoline. It was during a, uh, a gas war. I usually had to pay 24 cents a gallon. They all roll their eyes at me. The most important foreign policy issue that the Nixon administration had to deal with, of course, was finding a way out of Vietnam. Upon entering the White House, the president faced stalled peace negotiations and rising domestic discontent. Nixon had implied a secret plan during his campaign but it really evolved. When he first went into the White House, he still thought the United States could win a military victory. And for a few months, he hung on to that belief, but ultimately concluded that wasn't going to happen. And so he moved to a policy that he called Vietnamization, a gradual withdrawal of U.S. combat troops while increasing the air war and building up South Vietnamese forces. 
to give Vietnamization time to work and preserve the regime in Saigon, Nixon occasionally expanded the war. Over the next four years, he tried to intimidate the Vietnamese through escalated bombing, the mining of waterways, and threats of even greater destruction. In fact, he even pushed what he called the madman theory, that everyone knew Nixon was so anti-communist that he was virtually insane. And now, as president, he has his hand on the nuclear button, the madman theory, to intimidate the enemy. Well, you know what Nixon will do. You better make those concessions. Well, that never worked. Domestic opposition to the war increased, peaking in 1969, but remaining a significant factor through 1971 and actually sustaining itself through the war's conclusion. A broadly based anti-war constituency ranged from students to religious activists to military veterans. The largest protest was in October of 1969 at something called the Moratorium, which occurred in local areas across the country. In 1970, Nixon ordered an invasion of U.S. and South Vietnamese forces across the border into Cambodia. This invasion brought widespread demonstrations on college campuses, including Kent State University in northeastern Ohio, where Ohio National Guardsmen on May the 4th fired into a crowd of students, killing four and wounding nine others. The government's credibility suffered further with the publication of the Pentagon Papers and the exposure of the My Lai Massacre, where over 500 Vietnamese civilians, men, women, and children, were murdered by American soldiers. If the anti-war movement failed to end the war by itself, and I would argue that it did, it did place limitations on what the president could do. By the mid-1972, a dramatic reduction of U.S. troops and the blunting of North Vietnam's Easter offensive made both sides willing to compromise, and this would lead to a peace treaty. Nixon agreed to give up his demand that North Vietnamese troops withdraw from the South. The North Vietnamese dropped its insistence that President Thieu uh, be removed from his position of power. And once those two barriers were gone, the two sides moved toward an agreement. And finally, in October of 1972, a presidential election year, Henry Kissinger announces just before the election, peace is at hand. Well, it wasn't quite. Because the agreement that Kissinger had worked out with the North Vietnamese was not agreeable to the president of South Vietnam. And Nixon agreed. He said, you need to go back and rethink some of these. Actually, there were 69 points that the Vietnamese, uh, South Vietnamese disagreed on. Go back and negotiate again. Well, the North Vietnamese felt betrayed. We had a deal. Um, you're just trying to back out of something that we had negotiated. And so ultimately, with no progress, the talks end, and Nixon launches uh, another short period of bombing known as the Christmas bombing because it took place in late December. And the North Vietnamese said, if you'll stop the bombing, we'll come back to the table. And so they worked out an agreement. In January of 1973, they came together, again an agreement, 
Again, South Vietnam's president said, I, I can't live with this. This is basically a surrender. Only this time, what changed is Nixon said, we're going to sign it anyway. This is the best deal we can get. There was virtually no difference between that treaty and the Treaty of October of 72. But this time, Chu was forced to go along with it. And so we got out. Nixon called it peace with honor. He may have been the only one to say that. He was in a difficult position because the Vietnam War had begun decades earlier. He inherited a horrible situation, um, but his policies didn't, didn't improve the situation at all. The last thing I want to talk about this evening, make sure I'm not going on too long, is the struggle over presidential power. Nixon's second term began with a recovering economy and an impending settlement in Vietnam, but political battles ultimately cost him his presidency. With Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate, Nixon often sought to govern by stretching his administrative powers rather than negotiating compromises with Congress. And from the beginning of his presidency, Nixon was politically vindictive. He believed himself under assault by various adversaries, but especially the Eastern political establishment. He created a list of enemies that would suffer his wrath and searched for damaging information to smear his political opponents. He tried to use the Internal Revenue Service, the CIA, the FBI, to spy on his opponents. And he even created an extra-governmental entity in the White House that became known as the Plumbers to try and prevent leaks from the government because plumbers fix leaks. Kennedy sometime, or Nixon sometimes resorted to sabotaging federal legislation that he disapproved of. He impounded billions of dollars appropriated by Congress that effectively undercut the laws. He approved instances of illegal domestic wiretapping. He misused pocket vetoes. Ultimately, the federal courts ruled against him in virtually all of these cases. He had argued that executive privilege gave him a constitutional right to prohibit anyone in the executive branch from giving testimony to Congress. The courts argued that he didn't have that authority. Ironically, the law and order team of Nixon and Agnew would both end up on the wrong side of the law. Vice President Agnew faced charges for accepting bribes and kickbacks, both as a local, a state, and a federal official, including in the, the vice presidency. A federal investigation in mid-1973 looked into possible bribery, conspiracy, and extortion. Nixon resigned and pled no contest, suffered only a fine of $10,000 and three years of probation. Nixon nominated Michigan's own Gerald Ford to replace Agnew, and Ford won quick congressional approval. Nixon believed that Ford was his whole card. Congress would certainly not impeach him and make Jerry Ford president. But the Watergate scandal cast a shadow over Nixon's second term. He presided over what some described as the imperial presidency, concentrating power in a small group within the White House 
while ignoring much of the cabinet and encroaching on the powers of Congress. The paranoia and lust for power in this inner circle led to a series of unethical and illegal actions. The story broke to the public in June of 1972 when police arrested five burglars at the Watergate complex in Washington, D.C. These men were quickly tied to other people in the White House. This was not the beginning. This was the culmination of a pattern of political behavior that Nixon and his White House had engaged in since taking office years before. The administration tried unsuccessfully to buy the burglars' silence by paying them off and lied to deflect further suspicion from the White House. This worked for a while. Nixon was able to uh, avoid any feedback or any negative feedback until he was elected, re-elected in November, several months after the break-in took place. But early in 1973, the walls began to move in on him. A federal grand jury, the Washington Post, and Congress all sought to uncover the truth. Imagine that. At one point, Nixon fired John Dean, his uh, key White House attorney, and forced the resignations of top aides Haldeman and Ehrlichman as scapegoats. If I can get rid of my closest advisors, I'll be okay. He wanted to distance himself from the scandal. But in fact, he had been in on the cover-up only days after the burglary itself. John Dean testified to Congress in June of 1973, implicating Nixon's guilt. Nixon said that's not true. Obviously, one of them was lying. And during a congressional investigation, one of the White House aides indicated that, oh, that we have a secret taping system in the White House. And all of a sudden, people thought, if we can get those tapes, we'll know who's telling the truth. So hand over the tapes. Nixon claimed executive privilege. I don't have to turn these tapes over. And a special prosecutor um, refused to accept this. Archibald Cox was his name. Nixon ordered him fired. The attorney general refused and resigned. And Nixon ordered the next person in line to fire Cox. He refused and resigned. Nixon finally, on his third try, got somebody to fire the special prosecutor. This was known as the Saturday Night Massacre. For the first time, talk of impeachment became real. Well, if he's doing that, he must really have something to hide. Nixon was now fighting for his political life and finally agreed to appoint a second special prosecutor, even as his, uh, many of his key aides faced indictments that spring for conspiracy and obstruction of justice. Nixon continued to resist subpoenas for the tapes as it worked its way through the court system. But ultimately, the Supreme Court demanded their release in July of 74. That same month, the House Judiciary Committee recommended three articles of impeachment against Nixon. And on August the 5th, he finally released the last of the subpoenaed tapes. It was all over. Even some of his closest friends 
went to the White House and said, you have to step down. So Nixon was never impeached. He would have been impeached, almost certainly, and he would have been convicted, almost certainly. But he chose to resign rather than go through that. So Nixon resigned the presidency in August of 1974. So I'm just summing up. Richard Nixon left office with a very mixed legacy. During his administration, humans first reached the moon. Poverty fell to record lows, and a constitutional amendment lowered the voting age to 18. He enhanced revenue sharing and affirmative action programs. He gave at least public support to women's rights and environmentalism. Nixon's entanglement with Watergate, however, would forever taint his legacy. That scandal earned dismal public approval ratings and has remained a key element of his poor standing among historians. Even some of his most notable accomplishments are somewhat tarnished. His detente with the Soviet Union and his diplomatic opening with China were laudatory, but represented a reversal of a career spent hindering those very moves by other people. His confrontations over constitutional power were ultimately blocked by federal court decisions and brought more restrictive measures from Congress. His unwillingness to regard his political opponents as citizens with legitimate perspectives led to a secretive and unethical governing style that degraded the nation's political life and perhaps permanently eroded public confidence in the federal government. So I'll end with that. Thank you very much for your attention. Do you, usually, do you usually ask for questions or not? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm happy to try and answer any questions that you might have. Yes. When Nixon withdrew his demand for uh, the withdrawal of North Vietnamese troops and allowed the North Vietnam to keep its army in South Vietnam even after the fighting ended. And then he argued that he did that partly because he believed that the South Vietnamese army was now capable of defending the country. Did he sincerely believe that? Did Henry Kissinger sincerely believe that? Or were those simply fig leaves to cover an American retreat and defeat? Uh, no, they did not believe that. Uh, in fact, um, Kissinger is quoted as saying, uh, somebody asked him that very question. Do you really think, uh, after the Paris Accords were signed, do you really think the South Vietnamese can stand by themselves now? He said, no, I give them 18 months at the most. Um, uh, a member of the CIA wrote a book called um, Decent Interval. And the idea behind that, I think, is, is probably accurate. And that was the idea behind the agreement wasn't to resolve the problems in Vietnam. It was to allow the Americans to get out and then have enough time, a decent interval, before South Vietnam collapsed so that the US couldn't be blamed. Um, we did get out. The South was never able to stand by itself. So it was, as you say, a fig leaf. Other questions? Yeah. What would have really, really happened if there 
Well, obviously, I don't know because it didn't happen that way. So you're asking me to speculate, and historians um, don't usually like to do that. But I, I will say this. Ford argued that he pardoned Nixon for what sound like very legitimate reasons. Nixon was, was in, in horrible health. His life, in fact, was um, hanging in the balance a couple of times over, over several months. And Ford argued that he had suffered physically and mentally uh, enough, that he had been punished. He would punished himself. Ford also argued that it would be bad for the country to go through a trial because that would drag on for months where the country couldn't focus on doing anything else other than trying the president. And those both seem like legitimate concerns. Um, there were some people that said Ford had cut a deal with the president, that Nixon said, I'll make you the vice president if you pardon me at the end. There's no evidence that that actually happened. I don't believe that that happened. Um, but what Ford does receive criticism, well, he received a lot of criticism for that. But the public hated the pardon of Nixon. His, um, his public opinion poll numbers dropped from 71% to 50% in a week after that. But the, the thing that people criticize Ford most is that at the same time there were issues about granting amnesty to Vietnam-era draft resistors and war resistors. And Ford pardoned Nixon. He required no punishment for Nixon. He didn't do the same for draft resistors. And so people ask, are there two, uh, two levels of justice in this country, one for the powerful and the wealthy? and one for the rest of us? And that's a legitimate question to ask as well. So that's my answer. It's not a real answer, but. Other questions? Yes. Professors love to uh, ask students to uh, do similarities and differences. Uh, if you were to be asked to give similarities and differences between Nixon and our current president, what would you say? <laughs> and who is the current president now? I, I don't believe I've heard anything about him. Um, I, I sort of anticipated that question, and, and I generally wouldn't compare President Trump as much with Nixon as I would Joseph McCarthy. Um, but I'll answer your question. Both men um, appear to me to be very insecure. And so they, they bluster. And in private conversation, and of course, Trump has had to deal with private conversations that are much more available now than Nixon had to do because of, of the, the media that we have. In private conversation, they they could spew things that are racist and anti-Semitic uh, and other things. We have you know, Nixon's tapes now that, that tell us that. Uh, so they are both flawed, as we are, as we are all, although I, I don't want to put any of us in this room in those categories. Um, Nixon, however, came from that generation believing that to rule was something important. And so even even when his back was against the wall in the Watergate years, his second administration, he continued to try and do things 
to govern the country because he believed it was in the best interest of the country. Uh, I'm, I'm not a Nixon supporter. Um, I, I don't share many of his views and values, but I do believe um, that he was sincere in pursuing what he thought was the best interest of the country. Um, we can't really evaluate historically a president whose term is not yet over, uh, but if President Trump continues on the path that he has been on these past two years, um, I don't see even that as a, a positive mark. Uh, he impresses me as a person who, who is so consumed with personal gain and glory, and Nixon had some of that as well, uh, less financial than glory, um, that I, I don't really see the current president, unless he changes dramatically, as having the best interests of the country at heart. Both men, to, to talk about another comparison, both men pursued deliberate divisiveness in their actions. With Nixon, it was called positive polarization. The hippies, the students, the liberals, I don't represent them. And so I'm going to divide the country because I know that the people I represent, that's the majority. He called it the silent majority. And President Trump is doing the same thing. He has deliberately indicated that he is not representing all Americans. He's representing a certain group. Only with President Trump, as we look at his election totals, he's representing a minority of the American population. So they both are deliberately dividing the country, but Nixon was reelected. We'll have to wait and see whether Trump is able to pull that off. Thanks for the question. And there was somebody up. Closer, yes. If you contrast history's treatment of Kissinger versus Nixon, Kissinger seemed to have a more positive uh, reflection by history than Nixon with regards to Vietnam and the settlement of the war. I, th I think that was probably true up until the past decade. Both men, uh, Nixon and Kissinger, both have been very concerned about their own reputations. And Nixon and Kissinger have both written several books. In fact, one of Nixon's books claimed that we had won the, the Vietnam War, um, which was a, a stretch. But Nixon comes across poorly uh, and in historical accounts. But in recent years, in the last decade or so, Kissinger has faced the same type of assessments. And I think the reason for that is people paid a lot more attention to Nixon, historians paid a lot more attention to Nixon, than they did Kissinger in, uh, in the 80s and the 90s. Um, but some of the most recent treatments of Kissinger by historians at some of the leading in, uh, institutions in this country have, have not been generous. So I would recommend that you find the, some of the most recent books in this library on Kissinger and check them out. How's that? Yes? Uh, you said Trump was pursuing what's in his self-interest, but what would be, becoming president, what would be in his self-interest? Because he was worth $4.6 billion, now he's not because he sold those off. He's making 400000 a year, and he's giving that to charity. So what's in his self-interest with that? Well, to say that Trump is making his presidential salary and that's it, um, yeah. 
Um, he, his, his salary is making is probably less now, but that doesn't mean he's not earning money from his, his outside entities. His, his approach to setting up um, financial walls between himself and his, and his money is, is different than previous presidents. Um, those presidents were putting, uh, putting their, their finances in blind trusts and the president now is putting them in trusts that are controlled by other members of his family. And to think that he doesn't know what's going on, I think, is, would be naive of us. Um, he, he is seemingly, and I think we'll find out more um, as, as legal proceedings continue, we'll find more evidence of how he has attempted to manipulate his private gain th through his political activities, whether it be um, bringing people in to stay at some of his hotels or, or manipulating uh, diplomatic efforts to try and gain uh, financial benefits overseas. Uh, these are things that, that he seemed, uh, that, that seems to be in the public record prior to his presidency and I don't see any real shifts in his, um, his behavior that indicate that that has changed any. Now, obviously, we don't know exactly whether that's true or not. But just based on what I have seen in his pre-presidential years and what I know about his, his presidency, um, that's my expectation. It's not a prediction. It's just based on the past, that's what I see ahead. So I hope, I hope that answers your question. Are there others? Yes. Still trying to kind of formulate your question, but what did the congressional and court um, mechanisms to check abuse of power, um, what have we learned from that, and, and, and what is being applied now that's different from, you know, from the mid that's a great question. Um, one of the things that we've learned is that Congress, see, how do I say this? <laughs> this is on video, I guess. Um, Congress doesn't always have a strong backbone. And in order to assert its constitutional authority, it has to. Now, oftentimes, this is because uh, the president is of the same party as the congressional majority, but not always the case. For example, when Nixon faced his Congress, the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate. Um, I worked with a colleague in the journalism department that helped to write the report for the Iran-Contra scandal. But during the Reagan years, Reagan enjoyed a Republican Senate for most of that time. So one of the reasons why there was no serious move toward impeachment then is that the Senate was not going to impeach Ronald Reagan. There are other reasons, I think, but that's one of them. Um, and of course, Reagan now is dealing or has dealt so far with a Republican House and a Senate, and even now will have a Republican Senate. 
So will the, will the Senate move in that direction? I, I don't see that coming. I could be wrong. Um, but that's one of the things. Congress has to assert its own authority. When it does, another thing that we've learned is that it doesn't always work out the way we think it will. For example, in 1973, Congress repealed the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which had given earlier presidents um, authority to do pretty much what they wanted to do in Southeast Asia. There was no declaration of war in Vietnam. In fact, we haven't had a declaration of war since World War II. All of our wars had been executive wars. The repeal of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution was followed by passage of the War Powers Act. And this was designed to prevent executive wars by indicating to presidents that if you uh, move U.S. military personnel overseas, you have to report to Congress within a set period of time. I think the original law was 48 hours. And then you have to go back and justify the use of those troops to Congress at regular intervals. Now, the purpose of that was to keep presidents from sending troops abroad without a declaration of war, or at least without significant congressional input. Some scholars, some uh, legal scholars have argued that that, in fact, gives the president a little bit of leeway that the Constitution doesn't really provide, and that the president can now say, okay, now I can send troops overseas, and in 48 hours I just have to tell the Congress why I did it. So has, has the War Powers Act prevented presidents from initiating wars overseas? You know the answer to that as well as I do. So we've, we've learned a couple of things. Congress doesn't always act as a separate power base. And sometimes when it does act, it doesn't act effectively. Those are, those are not good lessons to learn, are they? <laughs> Where's our democracy going? Anyone else? Yes. In my perception, in the later years, Nixon seemed to regain some of his popularity or trust of the people in the country. Was that just me, or do you think that was actually it? No, I think I think most people would agree with you. He did a a marvelous job of trying to rehabilitate his reputation. He wrote lots of works. He, he made public appearances. In fact, if, as I recall, his first public appearance after his resignation came in the eastern Kentucky mountains, because I was living in Kentucky at the time. Uh, I think the town was Hyden, Kentucky. It was a little coal town. And he thought, surely the people here will like me. And they did. Uh, but he rebuilt his reputation. Um, he started meeting again with other former presidents. He spoke with uh, with acting presidents from time to time. And if you recall his funeral and the, the oratory of some of the people there, I was, I was scratching my head and thinking, is this the same Richard Nixon that went through Watergate? But he did. He, he, he rose again, just like he did after the defeat in 1960. He's one of the most remarkable political animals in American history. One more? Or is that it? Anybody else? I'll take one more. And if you're raising your hand and I'm not calling on you, I, I can't see you, but uh, anybody else? Okay. No, go ahead. So they, they presented uh, four presidents in this series. 
series. Um, Johnson, Kennedy, I missed one, Eisenhower, I think it was, Roosevelt, and Nixon. How would you rate the importance of their impact on the country? Um, and who were the four again? Lincoln, Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, and Richard Nixon. Well, of those four, I would rank Nixon fourth. Um, those are all good presidents. Um, I, I have to go with um, Lincoln would probably be the person I think that is strongest, although he, he did some things that, I, uh, that violated the law as well. Um, but he, he was born in Kentucky, so I have to go with, with him. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, maybe the first modern American president, uh, did some amazing things um, and a lot of some, and some bad things as well. Um, the whole Panama Canal thing was a bit dicey. Uh, and Lyndon Johnson, um, in many ways, uh, moved himself up. Again, he wasn't horribly poor, but um, he was not well off as a, as a young person. He made his way up through um, Texas and became maybe the most powerful and influential senator ever, certainly one of the top ten. Um, and he just he knew how politics operated. Um, Vietnam helped drag him down. Uh, but he had some, some wonderful ideas and was able to get more legislation through than anybody since uh, Franklin Roosevelt. So let's say Lincoln, maybe Teddy Roosevelt, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon. So, or were those, oh, were those the four? Okay. All right, um, I will stop here. It's, uh, it's a quarter after eight. Thank you for staying. Um, I assume you, you ended at 8. Thank you for staying extra. And the questions were wonderful. And thank you for, um, for coming out tonight. I enjoyed being here. This program is presented by the MCTV Network, a service of the City of Midland, Michigan. This presentation coincides with programming on Midland Government Television, covering government affairs in the City of Midland.